guy that's on my stomach growling. Oh god, we're talking about eating people and my stomach is growling. That doesn't <laughs> look good. Yum. Yeah, who would have thought the Z is for zombie? Hey everybody, welcome to Call Your Monster. Uh, my name is Adam. I am a writer living in Los Angeles. I'm Jewish and I'm down with the spooky things. Hi, my name is Jen. I am a writer also living in Los Angeles, also down with everything spooky. All right, so we're going to be doing something a little bit different from our usual episodes today. We are going to be leaning into both of our screenwriterly roots and talking about a scary movie that features Judaism quite heavily. So today we are going to be talking about Jerusalem. With a capital Z right there in the middle. So you right know shit's, <laughs> shit is about to go down. First, we're going to encourage you to go watch the movie because there's going to be a ton of spoilers. Go watch the movie, pause us, and oh my god, welcome back. Wow, are you scared? Yeah, wasn't that terrifying? We missed you so much. Okay, so in case you need a refresher on this wonderful movie that you just now watched, Jerusalem is the story of this girl, Sarah, who goes on a trip with her friend Rachel to Israel. Sarah lost her brother a year ago, almost to the day, and to get her mind off of mourning, Rachel takes her to Israel. They meet this guy named Kevin on the plane ride over, who's going to study anthropology in Jerusalem, and he invites them to join him. They go out on the town, they go to the Western Wall, Sarah puts a prayer into the wall, which is tradition asking for her brother to come back, and slowly over the course of the next 24 hours, the end of the world starts. So, you know, their friend Kevin starts spouting these crazed fears that the world is about to end. Everybody thinks he's nuts. He's not. Or maybe he is, but also he's not wrong. And over the course of Yom Kippur, chaos reigns. The dead come back to life. The city gets shut down. Everybody tries to flee the city. And on their way out, pretty much everybody dies except for Kevin. And... That's pretty much the end of the movie. It's a real upper. Yeah, I love that. Uh, this is a movie that shows all of these, perhaps not 100% three-dimensional Jewish and Muslim characters, but we don't have a final girl. We have like final waspy man. Yeah. But you know. <laughs> it's the final boy. <laughs> exactly. But hey, at least he's a scholar. He loves folklore. I mean, like his Hebrew pronunciation isn't great, but he's trying really hard. He has a lot of respect. That's true. And I will say like the actresses who play Sarah and Rachel, actually all of them are from Israel. And it feels very strange to be like, oh, this guy who is playing an American dude who is from Israel does a really good job of doing an American pronunciation of Hebrew words. Yeah, you know, I didn't realize that that was an Israeli man. So oh, yeah. convincing performance, I will give him that. Absolutely. Although, like, it is also very strange listening to everybody's English accents, and you can tell who has spent the most time in the States. Yes. Hint, it's Yael Groglas, who, for the record, for anybody who hasn't done the IMDb research as well, she plays the friend uh, Rachel, and she also appeared on Jane the Virgin. So... We could just dive in kind of and talk about the movie more generally, I suppose, before we talk about all that fun folklore shit, just because there's yeah. a lot to talk about. You That's know, true. this is this is a movie that takes place within Jerusalem. So we do appreciate that the movie at least tries to tackle some of the very complex uh, political issues going on in that part of the world. And in fact, 
again, we'll get into the spooky stuff later, but also tries to justify that part of the reason why Jerusalem is kind of ground zero for the zombie apocalypse is because there is so much hatred there and there is so much strife. And then also in the actual making of it, deeply problematic in like a number of ways. There's a character who's a Palestinian citizen of Israel named Omar, who's like the son of the hostel owner. He is played by an Israeli dude as opposed to, you know, an Arab guy. And that feels weird, especially given the context of him talking about, like, you know, the Israeli guards are absolute dicks to the Arab population. I mean, like, I'm glad they're acknowledging it, but that doesn't sit great with me. Also, there's that whole short sequence where the friend Rachel decides to scare the protagonist by putting on a burqa and leading her deep underground through yeah. kind of through the old city before revealing that it's her and she's going to take her for a wild night on the town. There are some good moments in here that show the tensions that result from three different religions being so tightly wound in this one space, but also they do a good job of showing the common ground between them, which is mostly, oh God, we're all going to die. Let's find comfort in something. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, again, I'm kind of getting ahead of us with talking about the folklore, but as we pointed out in a previous episode with this idea of religious synchronicity, you see that really coming to light here because people of all three religions are kind of forced to reckon with this same evil that's happening. Oh, and I also appreciate the fact that you pointed out the word Palestinian isn't ever mentioned in the movie at all. No. <laughs> yeah, and there's like a lot of references to East Jerusalem, which is in Palestinian territory, which like also feels like a pointed thing to not rep, like to say it's Eastern Jerusalem and not that is not a part of Israel. Which, yeah. I feel like me saying that, it's going to give me a lot of hate from a lot of Zionists. But You right. know, <laughs> yeah, we, we kind of know what we're in for talking about yeah. this stuff on here. So it yeah. is what it is. At the end of the day, like, it's a zombie movie. We can surely find some common ground just talking about that. Look, I we, this probably should be a caveat, but no one person's opinion on Israel and Palestine and the conflict is ever going to be the same as any other one person's, so we're only ever going to speak for ourselves. Yeah! Okay, covered that ground. Now let's get back to the right. monsters. <laughs> yeah, the fun stuff that we can speak about with <laughs> maybe a little bit more authority. Yes. <laughs> they have, in one of the conversations that the characters have, there's this implication that like all of the higher up religious figures, they're hiding a lot of the uglier truth of their religions, which doesn't necessarily feel out of the realm of possibilities, especially within the context of the movie. That's true. They kind of just throw that in there with this idea of having Vatican secret footage that has not been released to the public. And then yeah. it sort of falls away. There is, again, now I'm getting back into the hot water, but it's fine. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> the... We're just going to keep coming back to <laughs> it this. It is what it is. It's fine. They do address or sort of imply the same thing about the IDF because there is that moment where shit is starting to go down. You're hearing explosions throughout the city and the IDF soldiers come in and are like, it's fine, it's fine, just go back to your rooms, everything will be fine. And it's not until the people call them out that they're like, yeah, we should probably get out of here, let's go. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it definitely feels like, no, 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 nothing to see here, folks. Ignore the fighter jets shooting the giant monster. It's just like there are two shots of this giant thing and you're just like, Okay, can we go back to that? Like, I don't, like, zombies on the ground level, sure. But, like, that's a different thing altogether. Yeah, like, it's fine if the zombies are sprouting wings and, like, their mouths are distorting. But I draw the line at giant zombies. <laughs> we have to have a line. We're going to hold that line. <laughs> yes. All right, so let's 
talk a little bit about just the the non-spooky parts of Judaism throughout the movie. So this all takes place both on Erev Yom Kippur, which is the night before Yom Kippur starts, and kind of ends on the morning of Yom Kippur. And I will say, like, I lived in Israel for a year. Being in Israel on Yom Kippur is a very strange thing, just because it is absolutely silent. Everybody's walking around wearing white clothes, and they're either in shul or they're just, you know, being very reflective. No one is on the streets. No one's on the roads, you know, driving or anything like that. And, you know, one of the weird things that I learned is there's a group of uh, female skateboarders who just like take over the streets. Uh, what? And it feels very much like the difference between Israeli Judaism and American Judaism, where Israeli Judaism treats it with a level of reverence, but it's also just a day of complete rest and reflection. Whereas American Judaism, there's a solemnity to it. Yeah. And maybe it just is because speaking as somebody who has never lived in Israel, admittedly, but I can imagine <laughs> there's almost like a more secular quality in the way that in America, yeah, there's a lot of secular aspects of Christmas almost. It just yeah. sort of a vibe for the entire season. But here, because we are a much, much smaller community, it's sort of expected that you gravitate to others who are within that Jewish bubble on this day. I did wonder a little bit while watching the movie about these girls' relationship to Judaism, just based on the fact that they are American Jews, but they have this trip planned over Yom Kippur, so they're not with their families, which is a little bit unusual. And also, yeah. they were originally planning to be like partying it up in Tel Aviv during this time. So yeah. I don't know, not to read too much into it. Also, this is an Israeli movie, so maybe they just weren't thinking about it in that way. I yeah. just thought that that was interesting. No, I like it. I, and for people who don't know, the time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is something called Slichot, which is where you're supposed to make amends to every person who you've wronged in that year. And to go on a trip during that time, it feels strange because Sarah's whole thing is she is so pissed off at God. Yeah. That like she like the note that she puts into the Western Wall is just bring him back, you asshole. Yes. <laughs> Which like love that. And also it doesn't feel like the reason for the season, but it is the reason for the trip just to spite God. Right. It also, I mean, again, this is like Brittany gets this movie a lot, but it doesn't seem like she has a particularly positive relationship to faith at the moment. So Israel's yeah. an interesting choice for a travel destination, but hey, I respect it. That's They're true. supposed to be living it up in Tel Aviv. And I will say, like, I the reason that I moved to Israel was because I, like, needed a break from my regular day-to-day -day life. And, like, I was in a really bad spot, and going to Israel felt like a good escape. And, I mean, back on this note of Yom Kippur, this is supposed to be a time where Jews fast. But the zombies also aren't fasting, you know, they're feeding on the flesh of everybody around and a lot and some of these zombies are Jewish. I will also say, like, going back to the relationship with Judaism, I definitely think the film, it ties in closer to Judaism than the characters do, because all of this starts on Arab Yom Kippur. So when Sarah looks up at the sky and she sees three stars, then the fighter jets scream past, and that's the first inclination that anything is wrong. And the three stars thing is, you know, because it's a lunar calendar, that's when a holiday starts, is when you see three stars in the sky. A thing that I paused and looked frame by frame to be like, is that... Is that the third one? Is that it? And then it was. I also think, you know, tying back to how closely Sarah relates to her Judaism 
her brother has been dead for a year, at least according to Jewish law. You're no longer supposed to be in mourning. You know, you sit shiva for a week, there's some level of mourning for a month, and then at the end of a year, that's it. You move on, which is a weird thing to dictate, but that is technically what you're supposed to do. Yeah, well, and as the movie goes on, again, getting ahead of us, but Sarah's biggest problem, sort of her tragic flaw, is not being able to let go. She can't let go of her brother's death, which is understandable, sure, but... It is kind of the reason that she's in Jerusalem during this time when the apocalypse happens. She can't leave her American boy toy that she just met who's been locked up in an asylum. That's for some reason just where they send tourists who start getting a little upset for a few days. So she potentially endangers the entire group to go in this zombie-infested place and save him. And down the road, when her friend is attacked and is very, very clearly turning into a zombie, she still insists, it's fine. Let's take her into this enclosed cave with us. So Why not? Yeah, as one does. But I get it. On one hand, this empathy does feel Jewish and righteous. But also it brings about her downfall and another Jewish value, you could say, is on one hand, there's this idea that if you save one life, that's the same thing as saving an entire city. To save one life is a very amazing thing. But also it's okay if you break other rules in the service of protecting more people and saving more lives. So I don't know. I mean, that's why Orthodox, yeah, Sarah's deeply flawed. But as somebody who is in an interfaith relationship, I have noticed that sometimes Jewish people don't take kindly to that. We can be, for a myriad of reasons and persecution throughout history, we can be very insular. And I just think it's interesting that the two protagonists of this, or the two female characters in this, end up hooking up with Goyim. And it's just not really talked about. Nobody disparages them for doing this. Sure, the Israeli soldiers and pretty much every other male character hits on them. But there's no pressure on them to, I don't know, ally themselves with Jewish men over the course of the movie. And I just think that's kind of refreshing. It is refreshing. And therefore, they must die. At least they get to have some fun for like 48 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Is that how long it takes for the apocalypse to start? (laughs) That pacing feels weird. Yeah, I did know. This is a real slow burn of a horror movie, guys. Actually, speaking of, let's talk a little bit about the movie's approach to horror in general. So one thing, as you all know, because you all went and saw this movie, the entire thing is told from a first person's perspective. So Sarah has these smart glasses, you know, you can see somebody's Facebook history and you can see, you know, it identifies people and it can take pictures and she video calls her dad a few times, which feels like a really nice little exposition machine. Like I was saying about the horror, the glasses device, a little bit of a slow burn, but as shit gets real and they're starting to be on the run from zombies, you have that wonderful moment that they're trapped down there in Solomon's quarries in this cave and it's dark and you could see just glimpses of the zombies here and there. I thought it was pretty cool to have the glasses there. Oh yeah, that super works. And also because these zombies aren't really all that recognizable, it does help when it identifies her brother zombie as her brother. By pulling up his memorial Facebook page. (laughs) Yeah, I did wonder if having that moment was the entire reason that they decided to use this device, because otherwise there would be no possible way that you could recognize that zombie as being her brother. I think it was a combination of that moment and the moment where she's making out with Kevin and he's still checking out her Facebook page. Yeah. Like, while they're (laughs) making out. That was weird. And also just... I mean, he's supposed to be joking around, but he's just like, who's this asshole on the couch with you? Is that your boyfriend? Like, just who does that? Yeah. I don't know. Also, Not a very I'm, flattering moment. Also, not a good kisser. 
No. You're distracted. You're able to talk. Like, something's going on there. Yeah, you're, like, wisecracking while somebody's, like, unzipping your fly. I don't know. Not yeah. a fan of Kevin, clearly. <laughs> uh, I do feel a little bad for him because he's the sole survivor in the midst of the apocalypse that we know of. But whatever. I will yeah. also say sometimes the glasses are used for a comedic effect that really undercuts the horror. Like there's this whole sequence where Sarah goes into the asylum where they're holding on to people who are suffering from Jerusalem syndrome, which we'll talk about in a minute. And she goes in and it, there are some truly scary moments like jump scare, like, oh God, what's going to happen? And the glasses are really cool because it shows you just how discombobulated you can be. But then they start malfunctioning and blasting music, which just feels a little too Benny Hill. I did like the point. I mean, it, again, it was a little heavy handed, but when the glasses start malfunctioning and just like playing Japanese cat videos, <laughs> I did like that. <laughs> That's just my own love of cats. It's not necessarily deep film criticism. I will also say the glasses do a really good job of showing the claustrophobia of the city. At one point, Sarah has her bag stolen by this kid and she's chasing him through the alleys and she keeps running into things like walls, clotheslines, everything. And it shows just how much of a labyrinth the city is. And I, honest to God, have no idea how she found her way back to the hostel after after that moment. Yeah, incredible navigation skills. I mean, yeah, speaking as somebody who has no navigation skills, it's kind of impressive. I'm very lucky Elizabeth has a perfect uh, sense of direction, and I frequently take advantage of that because I'm just following her around. I'm like, oh, where are we going now? Here? Great. Think about it. We wandered in the desert for 40 years. It should not have taken us that long to find Israel. It's generational trauma, but just with senses of direction. So another place that we've, we've talked a little bit about is Solomon's Quarry, which is really good as a like horror trope because it's very claustrophobic and it's underground. And especially if there's a giant walking around who we never really talk about being underground feels like a misstep. But it does feel like they showed it early enough that it didn't feel overly convenient. Yeah. yeah. I thought they planted it well enough. I mean... The main thing that just bothered me about the cave is that Joel, her deceased brother's appearance, is like definitely a deus ex machina to see her dead brother appearing at just the right time. But I guess this was her wish. We are saying that Jerusalem is one of the hell mouths. So I guess it somewhat makes sense within the logic of this film that he would find her. I did. It did raise a question for me. How come her brother, as a zombie, did sort of preserve this element of humanity where he can recognize his sister, he's trying to help her, he's not attacking them, and the other zombies don't? So it makes me wonder how much of this surrender to, I guess, cannibalism and destruction is voluntary. And this is, like, way tangential, just going That's... off into my uh, <laughs> fandom no, no, no. For, for Mike Flanagan, but... I'm a big Mike Flanagan stan, obsessed with Midnight Mass, another great horror piece that also engages with religion, but it's not Jewish, it's very Catholic. But it just reminded me of how in that show, also like semi-spoiler, the congregation of this church sort of chooses to rationalize becoming monsters and just like give in to this bloodthirstiness. Yeah. And, you know, Shirley Jackson has the lottery and we have always lived mm -hmm. in this castle and all of that idea of the terror of a mob mentality. And it's so easy to justify something if everybody else is doing it. Not necessarily jumping off a cliff, but if everybody's pushing someone off a cliff, you're like, I guess, yeah, yeah, this is normal. We have to do this. So I guess if like if one person became a zombie and saw another zombie eating somebody or turning them into a zombie, then they're like, yeah, this is what we have to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does seem like 
Rachel as a zombie sort of goes back and forth. Like, first she does attack Sarah, but then she does end up blowing her head off. So I think there's still some le- element of humanity left in her that realizes she's going to hurt people. I don't maybe know. Maybe just a little. Maybe it's just something where Sarah's big flaw is that she always, you know, holds on to people. And she mm-hmm. believes that they're always capable of being saved. So maybe that comes back in her favor, where other people aren't able to let go of her in return. Yeah, that's That fair. also could be reading too much into it, because then she still turns into a zombie. She also stabs Omar's dad through the neck. It's unintentional, but maybe if she had made some better decisions earlier on, where she's trying and failing to save people... Omar's dad didn't have to die. Most of them didn't have to die. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they probably could have made it out of the city before they closed down all of the gates if she hadn't been trying to get back with Kevin. Goddamn Kevin. Goddamn Kevin. Kevin. Let's talk a little bit about all of the types of horror that this movie utilizes. It does utilize, like it's a slow burn and we can get into our personal feelings on how good the movie actually is, but it does utilize a lot of different types of horror. Mm-hmm. You know, I think all zombie movies have a tendency to rely pretty heavily on jump scares and this movie is no exception. I think like there are times when the jump scares really work. Like when Sarah is, as I said, in the asylum office and the glasses start to malfunction and the zombie's attacking her, I think that is a good moment of jump scares. But I also think after a while, you're like, oh, that's a dark corner. Oh, we've turned our head very quickly. There's probably going to be something there. Yeah. Which, I mean, I will say some of the fun of horror movies is how predictable they can be. You do start to anticipate, oh shit, she's going to turn this dark corner. Like, I know something's there. Do I want to cover my eyes? I don't know. Do you do a lot of, like, covering of your eyes when you watch horror movies? Yeah, or, like, I put up my hands, but then I still (laughs) look, so I don't know. There's some self-soothing thing there. That's right. Yeah, you're, like, protecting all of your vital organs just in case. Yeah, just in case something comes through the screen, the ring style. I also, this movie does, I think, again, all, a lot of zombie movies go with the body horror angle. So one of the really neat things is with the first-person perspective, you very much feel what that transition to a zombie is. Because you hear her labored breathing, you see her notice all of this black goo running up her veins and everything. It's not super gross, but conceptually it's pretty cool. Yeah, the end goes on for a little bit, the ending shot, but it's pretty fun to watch her sort of ascend into the sky and see all the destruction happening over the Jerusalem skyline. Yeah, the scenic Jerusalem skyline where come visit our giant pillar of smoke and our huge winged devil dude. (laughs) Yes, and just like thousands of winged zombies ascending into the sky. What did you feel like about the monster design? I mean, I like them. The distorted mouth, little bit funky CGI, but I'm a big sucker for that sort of thing. I think it's very scary whenever body parts are distorted in that way. So I liked it. I like the tattered wings. Again, going back to my recent fave, Midnight Mass. I just love how we've sort of in recent years in horror, like reclaiming this idea of angels being terrifying, scary entities. And just yeah. this just very scary, demonic way. What did you think? 
I definitely agree. And I think, like, that whole biblically accurate angel thing of, like, be not afraid. There's a reason they're saying that. They're supposed to look weird and otherworldly. Uh, although it does also beg the question of, like, since they're biblical zombies, what are they actually capable of? And what are their limitations? You know, at one point, Kevin tells Sarah to turn off the lights uh, in the cave. But if they're biblical zombies, like, are they not going to be able to see Right. Maybe Sarah rationalized this in her head, and that's why she turns her fucking lamp back on with a zombie <laughs> two inches from her face. Why, Sarah? For the chaos, of course. For the movie. For the sake of the movie. Also, true to Judaism, I also think there's a lot of the horror of other people. Kevin, this isn't really a horror moment, but at least for me personally, somebody tried to talk to me on a plane, like the way Kevin talks to Sarah and Rachel, that I would have pulled the emergency door and fled the plane in parachute. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it is worth mentioning that they are women traveling to another country alone, and they just seemingly have no sense of alarm bells. They're like, yeah, rando guy who's talking about folklore on a plane, like, let's upend our entire trip plans so that we can stay with him. Also, every single man they encounter, like, gets right up in their faces and tells them how beautiful they are, and they're just like, yeah, cool, let's keep hanging out, actually. I think, like, with Sarah, at least, you know, it's not necessarily a horror, but we have talked, like, her fatal flaw is just her not being able to let go of people, which also, as much as there is that construct for grieving and the proper order for grieving, that still feels like a very Jewish thing. It's just, like, holding on to the past. Well, speaking of holding on to the past, one might even say the ancient past. I think this idea of Jerusalem syndrome is very interesting. And we first sort of see it personified in the movie via this mentally ill man who calls himself King David and Mm -hmm. dresses up like King David. And we see him wandering the streets and eventually come to learn that he is actually the son of this patient zero zombie that we see in the opening footage. Maybe a little coincidental, but sure. Okay. And this whole idea of Jerusalem syndrome is very, very interesting. It's, It's a real phenomenon that's been recorded that people across religions go to the Holy Land and basically become so overcome by their experience of being there that they start to identify with biblical figures, sort of lose their minds. And in the the context of this movie, the way Omar describes it is people arrive in Israel and they can't cope with seeing things from the Bible come true. And yeah, and in the context of the movies, there's this lovely welcoming asylum very close to the hostel that they just chuck tourists into on the regular, which I kind of like. Yeah, and there is, like, when we see the asylum, it is in shambles. And there's no way that it happened that quickly. This was clearly a very poorly run facility. Everybody seems to have left except for the patients who they still have locked up. Again, this is where my suspension of disbelief sort of ends because Americans are notoriously litigious and I don't buy for a second that this place would get away with just hospitalizing American tourists against their will regularly. And speaking of the horror of people, as we mentioned earlier, I like this idea that Jerusalem is a hellmouth in part because of the hatred that spawns within the city. And I like the insinuation that mankind's folly is sort of what triggers the apocalypse happening here. I mean, on that note, do we want to get into the actual Jewish horror of it all? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, one of the first things that we see is this 
like little epigraph at the beginning from this passage in the Talmud, uh, Jeremiah 19. There are three gates to hell, one in the desert, one in the ocean, and one in Jerusalem. Dun, dun, dun. You know, some interpretations are like, this is a reflection of the different ways in which you can fail responsibilities or fail in other ways. So like the one in the sea referring to the belly of the whale of Jonah, who shirked his responsibilities and like fled in the boat and then got swallowed. The one in the desert could be in reference to this place where um, Korah, who was one of the Jews who fled Egypt, he rebelled against Moses and Aaron as they wandered through the desert. And there were like thousands of Jews and Korah's rebellion was about 250 people just being really loud. That feels like it's not necessarily entirely accurate of where that uh, Hellmouth could be, but possibly. And then the third is in Jerusalem, specifically by the Eastern Gate, and it's hypothesized that it's in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. So the Valley of Hinnom is basically God was punishing the people in this valley, specifically because they, in theory, worshipped and sacrificed their children to this other deity, Baal, which, you know, we talked about in our conversation about shades. The people in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom are threatened with some pretty messed up stuff. God wants to make it a desolate place filled with plague and disease, and there's this line saying, I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they shall eat every one the flesh of his friend in the siege and straight this, wherewith their enemies and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. And I'm not sure what straighten in this context means, but that just straight up sounds like zombies. It does. And I quoted that thing for far too long. But yeah, basically talking about like, we will turn this thing that a lot of people see as one of the gates of hell into a zombie hole. I do think it feels worth mentioning that we usually don't associate Judaism with hell. And in fact, as I mentioned in a previous episode, all this devil iconography that we think of that we associate with Christianity feels like very distinctly Christian. And in fact, this is probably just because Jewish views on the afterlife seem to vary greatly, just like everything in Jewish lore. And speaking as a Reformed Jew, Reformed Jews usually don't even bother to directly dictate what happens when you die. It's sort of the focus is on this life. We don't really talk about what happens after. Hasidic Jews, of course, do speak of this messianic age where the dead return, but it's often spoken of as sort of a period of enlightenment and sort of transcending all pain. So I did a little bit of digging here, and there is this passage from the Talmud where Rav Katina says, 6,000 years is the world, and it is in ruins 1,000. As it is stated, the Lord alone shall be exalted on that day. The day of God lasts 1,000 years. Again, another dense passage here, but according to Chabad.org, there are several interpretations for this passage and what this exact timeline is for the end of the world, but one interpretation is that we will basically have this millennium, or it's just a period and it's not actually a thousand years of destruction, which is kind of what we're seeing in this movie, followed by a more enlightened, happy messianic age. So maybe there actually is a light at the end of that zombie-infested tunnel. I also kind of want to go back to the idea that one day for God is a thousand years, which also means that God rested for a thousand years after creating the universe, which feels like an appropriate amount of time, but also unexpected. I thought it was just a day. I mean, sort of tracks if you look at the seven days of creation in terms of evolution and things like that. It makes sense that maybe God's days are 
a little bit longer than ours. That's fair. So another thing that we see, there's like all of these flashes of pictographs and everything. And we also see this headline for this article about the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, which is a reference to this passage from the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was this Hebrew prophet who had just a bunch of visions that he wrote into this book in the 6th century BCE. And I honestly did not realize that shrooms grew in the desert, but here we are. So in chapter 37, Ezekiel gets this vision from God of this valley filled with bones. And God has Ezekiel speak a bunch of different prophecies to the bones. And they slowly are constructed into skeletons and then covered in tendons and muscle and skin. And then they're reconstructed by the word of God. And they're all, it turns out, these disenfranchised Israelites. So in this movie, it's it's got this degree of violence and mayhem and infection. So it's not entirely connected to the book of Ezekiel, but it's one instance of Judaism and the concept of dead coming back to life. And it's not the only one. There are a couple of others. My personal favorite is from uh, the book of Shabbat 30a, passage 4, which reads, Rabbi Yohanan said, what is the meaning of that which is written? Uh, Set free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. And then in Psalms 88.6, it says, when a person dies, he then becomes free of Torah and mitzvot. So combining those things Mm. means that freedom in this case is a bad thing. It's the separation of the covenant from God, which means they're no longer bound by morals. And that feels to me much closer to the zombies that we see here. So now it makes total sense why the zombies are feasting on the flesh of the living during Yom Kippur. Full circle. Don't have to fast because they don't believe in God anymore. Got it. So that does not help my argument, unless I am a zombie. So maybe Uh, if you're a zombie, I think everything helps your argument. Because whatever you do is the correct thing for a zombie. I could march to the beat of my own drum. But back to this idea that we've spoke about in previous episodes of religious synchronicity. I do like this idea throughout the movie that all Abrahamic religions sort of have a version of this myth. It's sort of a, I don't know, it's a combination of many myths. But there are a lot of precedents for stories of the dead coming back to life, stories for the end of the world, for a version of an apocalypse. So it sort of becomes the common ground, despite all of the quarrels and dysfunction and differences between the people of all these groups. There are these two American Jews. There is this fucking Kevin, this goy from America. You have Omar and his father, who are two Palestinians living in Jerusalem. And then you have these IDF soldiers as well. And they're just sort of, they're forced to reckon with this common evil. And I do like, there's this I think this was just narration at the beginning of the film, which was very dramatic. But I liked this line. They all believed in different gods, but they were all dealing with the same devil. Uh, I do think, ooh, very spooky. I also think it's worth pointing out, this is where I put on my Hermione hat, that some of the folklore, as Kevin introduces it on the plane, doesn't really align with these beings as we've talked about them previously. So he equates Islamic angels with Christian zombies, I assume he's sort of drawing from revelations there, with Jewish golems, which as we've talked about before, as far as we understand them from our own research, are very, very different from zombies. They are sort of Frankenstein's monsters, but created out of inorganic material by man. So So they fundamentally can't be zombies. Yes, because they were never alive in the first place. They never had (laughs) souls in the first place. And yeah, again, inorganic. So a little different, but Kevin's trying really hard. That's fine. He's trying to impress these girls. I get it. I know. We all make mistakes. It works. <laughs> yeah, it works anyway. They are none the wiser. So if, if they fine. had listened to this podcast, they would have known that he's full of it. Yeah, but so protect yourself from the Kevin's of the world. Exactly. You can avoid being a victim of the zombie apocalypse if you just listen to us. 
And also back to this idea of demons, which I love. I bet you didn't know. Jerusalem, top destination for demons. It's believed that demons or Shadim often reside around ruins in the desert. And Solomon supposedly had some involuntary help from demons when he was constructing the second temple, which is sort of the Jewish equivalent of this conspiracy theory that aliens built the pyramids. That, I've never put those two together. That is so (laughs) fascinating. That was a, a hot take from me being very sleep deprived this morning. <laughs> yeah, but it works so well. Oh, God. Okay, so while I mentally recover from that, let's talk about Jews and animals. Because there are a few moments of, like, interacting with animals in, in the movie. Like, at one point, there's a, a cat that swipes at uh, Sarah and Rachel. And it kind of feels like that's supposed to be an omen. Technically, it's not kosher to look for omens. Don't do that. Um, but also Jews overanalyze everything. So we, yeah. our anxiety makes us always look for omens. <laughs> Please, um, yeah. That's, I think every Jew is probably guilty of that one. <laughs> yeah, 613 mitzvahs, and we can only ever get 612. So house cats themselves aren't ever mentioned in the Torah, but they are mentioned in the Talmud, where they are mentioned as being like virtuous and full of wisdom. And there are some translations from Talmudic text that says the cats don't know God or that they don't recognize their authority, which is kind of similar to the zombies being freed from the Torah. And then again, you know, for the most part in the Middle Ages, Christians saw cats as these familiars of witches. And there's a prevailing theory that that's because cats weren't actually native to Europe. And so they were seen as these strange invading species while Jews were already familiar with them because we came from the desert and Egypt where cats reigned supreme. And Jews also have, or at least they did, they might still have synagogue cats who are meant to protect the Torah from being eaten by mice. What? That is incredible. I love it. The Hebrew word for cat is chatur, which also made me decide that there's a pun called chashul. (gasps) I love it. I am so on board. I want a synagogue cat. We should also note we are both cat parents. So, yeah, one of us willingly. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, me very willingly. And I just have a wife who is too generous to four week old street cats that she finds (laughs) in cars. Okay, so getting back to the animals of it all. So there's also something to do with crows, where Sarah puts her prayer into the Western Wall uh, to bring her brother back. And the minute she does that, a bunch of crows fly overhead. That sort of got me thinking about what is the significance of crows in Judaism. A crow is one of the two birds sent out by Noah from the ark to see if the flood was over. The other one famously is a dove. Now the crow didn't find anything and kept returning to the ark. So this could sort of be seen as the crow as a symbol of false hope, like Sarah's dream of her brother coming back, but not how she intends it, so her hopes are dashed. Leviticus also goes out of their way specifically to say that crows and all other corvids, like ravens and magpies, are not kosher. Like, these birds specifically, fuck them. Somebody really didn't like crows. <laughs> yeah, well, and like that kind of makes sense because the Hebrew word for crows is orev, which is really similar in root to the Hebrew word for night, which is erev. So oh. they're seen as these like dark entities. Part of the issue with the crow on Noah's Ark is that they're they're seen as only acting in self-preservation. So the crow begs Noah not to send him back out. And he's like, look, you took all of these kosher birds and there's like seven of them. And there's only, you know, myself and my wife and, you know, if I die, you're not going to have any more crows. And then there's this moment of him going like, wait a second, are you just trying to send me out so that I die and you can marry my crow wife? <laughs> Which is hilarious. Uh, and also, we can't prove that the crow was wrong. I really want fan fiction now about Noah and the female crow. Yeah, their uh, their couple name is Croa. 
<laughs> but so crows being seen as only acting in self-preservation is how most of the protagonists wind up acting throughout the story with the exception of sarah wanting to save everybody and dooming everybody else's efforts at self-preservation arguably just dooming everyone so maybe we should all be more like crows <laughs> then one more like sort of shower thing like when they first get to the hostel that omar and his dad run there's this guy who's playing an oud which is a you know middle eastern instrument and I think it's Omar says he plays to calm down the demons. And there actually is a relationship between music and demons. King David was actually apparently able to temporarily exercise an evil spirit that had possessed Saul by playing music. But every time he stopped playing, the demon would come back. So, you know, when the zombie apocalypse comes in Jerusalem, the guy who's playing the oud isn't there anymore. So it feels, and like, yes, technically speaking, you're not supposed to play music on Yom Kippur, but also this is clearly an Arab-run hostel, so that yeah, might it's be... it's the Muslim quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it still feels like the guy is not playing music anymore, so the demons are free to roam about. But again, like, a lot of this is probably all conjecture, but also this is what we do. It's close reading, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. We got points for this in school that probably, I don't know, contributed there to my is. own uh, academic performance anxiety, but it's fine. Getting back to the end of it, what did you think about Jerusalem? I mean, as I said, it's a little bit of a slow burn, questionable how these women act under the circumstances they're in, but the strength here is the lore. It's a really fucking fun setting. All of this zombie shit is also very, very fun. And I think even as I might have mentioned in the previous episode, I normally do not like zombie movies. Zombies I find more terrifying than any other cryptid, whatever you want to call them. But I did have a lot of fun watching this movie. And I like that first person POV. I'm a sucker for that whole found footage Blair Witch Project style movie. This is my second time watching the movie too. And I think it was just as enjoyable. And it was fresh enough to warrant the rewatch. Yeah, I I think I'm generally in the same camp. Like, it wasn't super scary. It wasn't, you know, revolutionary. But they packed so much lore into it, whether they meant to or not. And it was just like, it was fun. You could watch it with the lights off and not be overtly scared while doing so yeah you could sleep well after watching this movie (laughs) yes well uh thank you for joining us on this movie watching adventure we're going to try to do some more of these in the future so buckle up for those and you know if you want to talk more about this movie hit us up on instagram uh we're very bored clearly because we're watching this movie twice (laughs) and tune in next time stay safe out there stay safe avoid zombies avoid kevin avoid kevin most of all Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Call Your Monster. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe. If you have questions or have monsters that you want us to talk about, you can let us know in the Apple Podcast Rate and Review section or message us on Instagram at callyourmonsterpod, where we'll have a glossary of words we used this episode, as well as some almost funny memes. We'll see you next week. Uh, 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 uh.